So we'll approach today like we have so many years now, and that when we're coming to the Lord's table, tending not to treat it so much as a time where I'm going to attempt to preach as much as just talk. We're just going to we're just going to talk for a little bit here and kind of get our thinking moving, hopefully in a good direction. Um, we are going to be working from a text today. Uh, Matthew, and it's not in Matthew, but Matthew chapter 26, Jesus said as he was sharing the elements with his disciples at the Last Supper when the Lord's table was instituted, he said, this is my, when he gave him the cup, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant all of you drink from it. He said, for I will not drink from this again with you until we drink it in my Father's kingdom. There's all sorts of truth that is rolled into that, friends. Uh, the one, of course, is the fact that there's a new covenant that he burst. I mentioned that because we have been talking about the covenants. Last week we spent copious time discussing the covenants. There was, a, there was an a, uh, Abrahamic covenant. There was a Mosaic covenant. There was a Davidic covenant. Collectively, we look back on those and how God was working in the Old Testament. We look back on those as the Old Covenant, what He had been doing. And then as God continued to reveal His redemptive work, uh, through, um, through history, we come upon that time when Christ came and, and offered Himself. And then His blood became the blood of the new covenant. And one of the things we have tried to stress, and Paul is stressing on it uh, as, we're, um, as we're reading, and that is that there is these two words. There's continuity and congruity. That when you get to the New Testament, when you get to what Christ has done, it does not throw out the old. It does not reject the old. It does not diminish the old covenant in any way. It's a, it's a movement from it. Both historically, it's continuous. It's built upon it. And it's congruous in that it's not in conflict with it. And we need to remember that because there are people who try and say things that are just completely off base. And one of the things that is said sometimes is that the Old Testament is the God of wrath and the New Testament is the God of love. That's nonsense. You hear that, I want in your mind you to immediately go, that's wrong. They are all one continuing development of God's redemptive work. And they're not that there was God was this God and now there's a different God. Absolutely not. It's magnificent, this redemptive story that we have that God had been revealing through the ages. Well, as we got to Romans chapter 4, Paul was aware that this, as he was, as he was uh, enlightening people with the, with the um, insight of the new covenant that Christ brought with His blood, which we will be remembering, uh, that they get, that could confuse people. And one of the things that he was challenged about was that you're, you're, um, you're undoing the law of Moses. You're undoing those old covenants. You're, you're making a mockery of them. You're saying they didn't matter. And he, and he, asked, he, he, he specifically asked the question, is what I'm bringing, does it, does it destroy? Does it deny? Does it diminish the old covenant? He said, absolutely not. In fact, it establishes the old covenant. And then he's giving us four reasons why. And I'll bet if you could sit with him person to person, he could give you another dozen. That's just how it is. With you. you can't get it all said. So, so we've been looking at those four reasons. And uh, we're going to look at the fourth of them today. 
And the good news is that you're going to feel, we're going to, we're going to be able to say we're getting near the end of our ride through Illinois. We've, it's been like, oh, we're still on this same topic? Yes, but that's how important it was to Paul. So I'm going to pick up the, the, uh, the context in our reading in Romans chapter 4, verse 13. And we read this, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world, he is Abraham, we're talking about, at this point, Abraham, uh, heir of the world, was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, we dealt with that last week. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who, contrary to hope, in hope believed so that he might become the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's the key phrase to all of what we're talking about in chapter 4, about Abraham coming, he, uh, he, he uh, demonstrated faith, and God looked at that faith and accounted it for righteousness and put it to his, uh, to his uh, well-being. So here's what these verses say, and it's a little longer than the passages that we have been looking at most recently, but we'll, we'll try and uh, summarize them in, an, in a, hopefully a, an understandable way. First... God's promise was never contingent on the law. It was not. The promise that he'd be heir of the world was not to Abram and his seed through the law. He makes that very clear statement. By the way, the word promise, five times it shows up in these verses. Five times Paul is writing about the promise given to Abraham. So somehow we need to understand this concept of this promise that he was given. This promise that he would be the father of all nations. That many nations would come from him. Many peoples would come from him. And what Paul begins with now in this fourth argument, as he has uh, made three prior to this, right? Do, you remember, do we remember, want to recount the three? Here's what they were. Justification by faith establishes the law by first, he said, by glorifying God who alone is worthy of glory. And then he said, and, and that we equated to our trip from Rockford to Bloomington, Illinois, which very few of us know, but I'm telling you, that's how it goes. From Rockford to Bloomington, Illinois. Then, he, the next th statement he made, he brought us over to David, and he quoted from Psalm 32, and he said that blessing sinners, that, that justific justification by faith establishes the law by blessing sinners, just as David described. It's the same experience that David had. And we said, now that's going from Bloomington to Champaign-Urbana, and it's nothing new to see anywhere along that way. 
And then the third thing that we noted is that justification by faith establishes the law by revealing the inclusivity of God's redemptive work. Remember, he was going to be the father of many nations. It was very inclusive what God was revealing. And from there, we went from Champaign-Urbana on down to Effingham. And in Effingham, we were just blessed to see this huge cross. When I say huge, I mean huge. You see it, you do not forget it. And it's like as we're on this journey where nothing seems to change, He takes us to the cross of Christ. And He says, it's in the cross where all the nations of the earth are blessed. It's in the cross, that redemptive work that, that uh, Christ did. That's where this expands out to everyone. And then He goes on to say in our passage for today that the justification by faith establishes the law by revealing the power of God's promise. That's why I've said five times he's referencing the power here. And now we're moving on past the beauty of the cross and we're just continuing the discussion. And there, um, uh, what we're going to do is go south of Effingham and we're getting pretty close to leaving Illinois. So just so you'd be glad to know that. All right, because I promise if you're on this trek, you're glad when you get south of Effingham because you know we're going to get out of this crazy state here in a little bit. But here's the point. God's promise to Abraham that he'd be the father of many nations was not built upon the law. It was not built upon that you have to do this or when, when you think in terms of the law, quite honestly, the law isn't even going to show up for about another 400 years, the law as we know it. The law given to, Moses, given to Moses. Abraham put him about 1800. Moses put him about 1440. We're looking centuries later. And God had a purpose in not, and those things not being specifically one right with the other in order to keep them separate. But he said there's never been an issue that justification was done by the law. And why is that? He said because the law brings wrath. The problem is, if it's up to us, what hope do we have? What hope would any one of us have? If it were up to us to keep the law on our behalf. Hello. Once you've walked with Jesus for a long time, you very, you, you very assuredly learn that if it was up to me that I have to keep the law perfectly in order to be right with God, I'd have been condemned to hell decades ago. And those of you who have walked with the Savior for a long time, you know that. Now, some of you younger ones, you may still think you got it in you to be that good. Just keep living. Trust me. You will learn with the rest of us. We haven't got it in us to be that good. And if it was up to us keeping the law, to keeping the rules and the regulations, if that's what our world was like and why we gather, we would all be in abject horror over what awaits us, the condemnation that awaits us. Because that's all that can come from the law is wrath. He says, because why? We can't keep it. We are incapable of keeping it. And so God had, has something better in mind that doesn't rest upon us. It rests upon Him. And we looked at it, twice we've looked at it, at least in, uh, once in detail, once in passing, the, the idea that Abraham, when he got this promise, and he was trying to understand what God was doing, God gave him a sign of the promise and the sign of the promise was when he split those animals and God alone passed between them. 
What was God saying? If you'll remember, and I'm repeating it so we do remember, God was saying from Genesis 15, which is where Abraham believed God and it was counted him for righteousness comes from. In that very context, God was saying, I will do the work. I'm not asking you to do anything other than believe that I'm going to be doing this and I will get the work done. He alone entered into that, into that particular covenant. Now there was a sign of the covenant 14 years later, which was that of circumcision. We looked at that last week. But they weren't put right in conjunction with one another. When Abraham was accounted as righteousness, circumcision was an issue. The Mosaic law wasn't an issue. None of them existed. It was simply God made a promise to Abraham. And Abraham believed him. And God said, that's what I'm looking for. Next week, I hope to spend, or two weeks from now, I'll be gone next week, but I hope to spend some time asking the question, why is that so important? Because we've been hounding this thing about faith. Why? Why does that matter? So, God's promise was never contingent on the law. The promise that he would be heir to the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And then he continues on in verse 16. He says, Therefore, it's of faith that it might be according to grace, notice this, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. And always think in terms, friends, it's legitimate to think in terms of Abraham. And he was the father of the Israelite nation. He was, he was the one through whom all the blessings and the development and the revelation of the Gospel came through. The anticipation of Christ being born of Abraham and then later of David. And all of that follows through His bloodline descendants who were marked by circumcision and were to remain holy because of that. That's a reality. But it did not exclude those of us who were not in that bloodline. It's not like, well, if you're not in His bloodline, you lose. No. God's saying to Abraham, I'm going to do this work through you and it's going to spill over and I'm going to draw people from every kindred nation and tongue and they're going to become part of what I am doing through you. So he says it wasn't just to those um, who were of the, of the physical seed or descendants of Abraham, but it's to all of those who enter into the same faith that Abraham had. That was what made it it made its way to uh, that God could call Abraham just before himself was the faith in the promise of God. And he says that in the presence of him whom he believed, Abraham believed God. And then there's this magnificent phrase that Paul gives us here, who gives to life, who, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Two things that Abraham was trusting and understood about this God with whom he entered into this faith relationship. God is able to bring death or life where there has been death. Number one, he's able to do that. And number two, he is able to make things happen that don't even look like they make sense. He's able to call things that are that do not exist. Like, you're the father of many nations, Abraham. I am making you that. It's like, yeah, really? I don't even have my own descendant. You haven't even given me one descendant of my own bloodline. And you're telling me I'm the father of many nations? And God's saying, yes, you are. And Abraham believed that. That somehow 
this God was able to bring life where there was death and to bring into existence that which does not even exist. And he trusted him for that. Verse 18 goes on to say, who contrary to hope, in hope believed. There wasn't any indication here that, oh yeah, we can see where this is heading. We can see where it's going. You know, right now we're having all, uh, how many people will tell you, all right, we're come, come November, there's going to be a, a slaughtering in the, in the elections because poll numbers are so low. They can tell you what's going to happen because we can read these indicators and they'll make a statement about it. Now, we still have to let it come and see what happens, but uh, they're making their statements. Abraham had nothing to go on. No descendants. How does, it, how does he become a father of anybody? He had nothing, but nonetheless, he was believing God that he'd become the father of many nations. When God took him outside, said, look at the stars, so shall your descendants be. And he believed him. He trusted him. And not being weak in faith, and this is where that dead part comes in, not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb is like, these are two old people. They're not going to have children at this point. It doesn't make sense. It's long past that time that either of them would be entering into this task of being a parent. And they had no success at it yet that far. And he, he knew that this, this naturally isn't going to happen. Our lives, our, our bodies have come to the point that they're dead as far as procreation, and yet he believed God that he, God could give life to their bodies. And he could do this. Verse 20, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. He, didn't, he wasn't shaky, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God at this promise. This promise that he would become the father of many nations. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now God's promise to Abraham was never contingent on the law. That was only going to bring death. That wasn't going to cut it. God's promise to Abraham was always contingent to believing what God was telling him, to trusting him that he was going to be that place where God did a miraculous work, where God did something that was going to change the world. God did something that nobody could believe, and he was going, God was going to do it. He was going to do it through Abraham. And he was only asking Abraham to take him at his word and trust me on this one. And Abraham did. So there was two things that he was trusting him for. Number one, somehow, somehow there's going to be life coming from these two old bodies. And he believed there would be life. He ran into some issues on that as you read the story. You know, well, he's some things he tried to figure out on his own. I think there's a whole story in there that we need to understand at some point. It's not in this study on Romans. But uh, he believed him about deadness coming from, or life coming from the dead bodies that could no longer be reproductive. And two, he believed him that somehow out of whatever is happening here, he'd become the father of many nations. It would go beyond his bloodline. Wonderful. That's what it was contingent on. And the, the important thing in that, first of all, is that's the only place where there's assurance that it's going to happen. Because if it was contingent on Abraham, 
He couldn't have pulled it off. He couldn't have pulled off the righteousness of living perfectly with the law. And didn't have a clue how he could make, uh, make his own dead body and Sarah's dead body, how they could make them work. His, his plan was what? Bring in Hagar. Well, I guess this is what we're supposed to do, kind of moving God's hand on it. And God's like, no, that's not, you're not getting it yet. But he, you're trusting me, but you're not, you're not getting quite in, in waiting on me with that. So this assurance of this promise, you will become the father of many nations, was about life to their bodies and about just the stars of the heavens are a good example of how many of your heirs you're going to have. And the point that Paul is making these promises were made to Abraham. And now that the gospel in its fullness is being understood through what Jesus Christ has done, now that the blood of the new covenant has been shed, it is offered to everyone around the globe. Remember Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all men. Didn't say bring them into, the, bring them into Israel, make them Israelites. Didn't say that at all. Go out, preach Christ, and by faith they will become a part of God's redemptive work. And they will become the children of Abraham every bit as much as the descendants of Abraham. In fact, if you take what Jesus uh, said when he was when he was having his little interactions with the religious leaders, he's like, "You're not really the children of Abraham because you have no faith. You you have you have uh, rejected your presence in the kingdom of that God is building, where the descendants of Abraham are blessed, because you refuse to enter into the faith that he had. And there are Gentiles over here who are believing, and they're part of the descendants. And ultimately, you're not going to be considered a child of Abraham because it's always been." about believing as Abraham believed. And then when we do, it releases the power of God. It employs the power of God. It makes available the power of God. One, to call us righteous. We don't have any righteousness of our own. It's Christ's righteousness. And we'll see that in more detail. He'll develop that more. But one, it gives us the the, uh, that the promise of God is so powerful that it enables Him to call us righteous, to label us as okay before Him. That's number one. And number two, it's got the power to bring us in to the nation of Israel, to the, to the descendants of Abraham, to this promise that was made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, where the first promise of the Gospel was coming forth. And now God has said to Abraham, look, you're, that, that promise is going to be fulfilled and it's going to work through you and your descendants. And Abraham believed that. So friends, here's where we're at. You know, I, some guys are comfortable doing this. I'm not. I, I, they, they have ways of saying things. I go, oh, I don't quite get that. But I know there have been preachers out there who have said things like, you know, claim your miracle. Just claim your miracle. You've got to believe it and claim it. And I'm like, um... Not sure I can force God's hand on whatever it is that I want. I, I absolutely believe I trust God. And that's where my faith is to be. And I can put requests before Him, but claim a miracle. Look for that miracle. I just trust Him to work on my behalf. And sometimes, does He do miracles? Absolutely. There's many miracles right out here. There are many of you who would attest. If I said, hey, everybody who can tell this, a story like this, come on up here, and we'd be here for the next two hours. As you came up and said, here's what God did for me. That was only by the power of God. That's happening. 
But what I'm suggesting is I've never had the confidence to say, hey, uh, claim your miracle. I'll show you how. This miracle is yours. It's coming. It's like, I don't know what God's going to do. I do know He promises to work on my best behalf. So I'm confident in that. That's what I am trusting Him for. But I would like to say this about miracles. Based upon what He has said here, the God who is able, what? Um, who is able to bring life from death, the God who is able to move somebody from not a child of Abraham to a child of Abraham, each through the concept of faith, I would like to suggest that that's the power of our God working miracles in each one of us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, you are a walking miracle. You are a walking expression of this redemptive work that God's been talking about since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and has been unfolding. And if you by faith have entered into that relationship with God, you have, you have and are. You've received the miracle of salvation, but you are a miracle in that. What did Jesus say? He who believes in me shall not, shall not die, but live. You are going to enter from one existence to another, but you're never really going to die. You're never, that life has been given to you. That's number one. And number two, relationship change has happened. We have all this thing called the descendants of Abraham and the children of Abraham who are part of this covenant way back in Genesis. And you've been placed into it. Not by anything you could do or I could do, but because God has the power to say, that's where I put you now. I can move you into that. Because you have demonstrated the same faith that Abraham demonstrated. And why does it matter? Folks, the world is just crazier by the day. Absolutely. And the evil one is going to use that to knock us off balance. The evil one wants to destroy your joy. The evil one wants to take from you any assurance, any confidence that God is actually at work. That God is doing something, whether in your life or in other places around the world. The evil one wants to take that from you. No assurance at all. Why are you trusting this God anyways? He's going to want to do that to you. He's going to do it to me. He does it to me all the time. But we need to come back. And here's what I'd like you to consider. When the evil one comes and tries to tempt you, tries to uh, discourage you, tries to tell you that, um, yeah, yeah, you're not worth anything. I want you to come back to this. By the miraculous power of God, I have been made alive in Jesus Christ. And I am a descendant of Abraham. God has already done a miracle work in me. And to begin to see yourself as a walking miracle. Regardless of the other stuff happening in life. Do you see what I'm saying? I want me to look at something that is absolutely solid. The promise is assured. I don't know if God is going to heal you from the medical issue. I don't know if He's going to bring the finances that you need. I don't know what, he has, what training program He has you on that maybe it's necessary to go through that. I don't know any of that. But I do know that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you're a walking miracle. And you can claim that. And you can always be confident in that. That you are a part of this magnificent work that God has been doing since Adam and Eve fell in the garden. And you're going to see how it goes back to that if you'll stay with us. My friends, we have a magnificent God. 
And everything we're talking about, everything that we're saying that God has done and God will do, it is all based upon the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. That's it. And we're glad it is because if it was based upon anything we could do, we'd mess it up. But Christ didn't mess it up. He did not mess it up. He went to the cross. He bore the penalty of our sin so that if we will trust Him in that work as God has asked us to, if we will trust Him, He becomes our sin bearer and we receive His righteousness. And God is able to make that transition. Why? Because He's got a powerful promise that He's able to do through what Christ has done. So we're going to, uh, we're going to take a few minutes here and uh, we're going to celebrate, celebrate what Christ has done for us. We're going to remember as he, as he told us, as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, do so in memory of me. We're going to do that just now. 